0: This episode contains sexual content. This is a logbook entry from December 18th, 1975. The volunteer who took the call was Mark. For the third successive session I've been on Gay Switchboard, I have been asked genuine questions about gay sex by people who have been worried about it. E.g. what happens to the semen when it's inside you? I think this backs up, unintentional pun, that's actually in the logbook, the point made by Paul a few volunteer meetings ago, that if we are asked about fucking, etc., we should not shy away from giving the information. People really do have hang-ups, and there are few, if any, sources, excluding the now out-of-print homosexual handbook from Olympia Press, which are honest enough to print what actually does happen. It is worth satisfying a few wankers for the sake of those who are afraid of the unknown or have been conditioned by the outside world to think it unnatural.
1: So many questions. I know that... Um... <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: a wanker is. <laughs>
1: when I was young, I was desperate to know more about sex. I remember watching Queer as Folk, the only thing on TV which was remotely... Uh, LGBTQ+, and I don't think there was anything uh, to do with lesbian sex in there, although I think it was alluded to once in one of the episodes.
0: The lesbians have a baby. Yeah, so, <laughs> but how did it get there?
1: <laughs> You're listening to The Logbook, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today.
0: In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith.
1: I'm Tash Walker.
0: This is episode three of the Logbooks, Let's Not Shy Away From Sex.
1: Which is all about sex.
0: (laughs) And we've we've spoken to people who have sex, and including those who are having sex in the 70s.
1: And some switchboard volunteers who uh, talk them through it on the phone.
0: And this is the one thing that is distinctive about uh, many people in the LGBT community as a minority is the sex that they have. That their sex lives are often different from the norm if you're a gay man or a lesbian or a bisexual person um, and yet there is this lack of info and that's something that comes up time and time again in the logbooks, is people asking those kinds of questions like what do I do uh, I've managed to persuade this boy to come around tonight you know what's he going to expect me to do how do I perform all of that kind of stuff
1: I barely remember my um, sex education I think it involved us watching a video um, and then a banana and a condom but of course that's something I've had very little use for <laughs>
0: bananas are really useful <laughs> Delicious. you don't have to just use them for condoms um, it was actually against the law for mm-hmm. schools to teach us uh, about gay sex <laughs> uh, because of section 28
1: which we're going to come on to in uh, the next season
0: So thinking about that logbook entry at the top of the episode, we've got former volunteer Julian who remembers what it was like to take those kinds of calls.
2: Is it painful to be fucked? Is it painful to fuck? Um, How does one do it? And the thing of, you know, lubricant of relaxation, of taking things um, gently, of uh, there was more to sex than fucking anyway, of, you know, it was part of a, a thing of things. And one very quickly started to recognise the people who were genuine about that as opposed to those people who just wanted it either as a wind-up or were doing it just because they were jerking off. Yeah, you know? I think they're jerking off. When you're being serious about this, please phone back. But I'm putting the phone down now. Bye-bye. What else could one do but at least take people on face value of what they were asking about?
0: Phoning switchboard might have been the first sexual experience for someone that is talking about sex with another person.
1: I mean, we're hardly fully liberated today, um, but in previous decades, Britain's handled this matter very differently.
3: Well, my mother knew. It was a case of don't ask, don't tell. And I didn't, out of respect for her. I don't, I think it's utterly wrong when people say my mother has a right to know or my parents have a right to know. They don't, they often do know all too well, but in our family, you didn't talk about sex at all, let alone gay sex. So that was the way things Mm. were then.
0: And yet, Tash people were doing it then.
3: Guys wanted
1: to get off, Adam and (laughs) girls. And the nature of having uh, same sex desires was to be secretive. It's obvious in the logbooks that cruising for sex discreetly was such a big part of men's sex lives, especially in the period we're looking into.
0: Ah, Julian's got more to say on this, including the best methods.
2: Cruising in the early 70s. Well, I found out places where to go. You know, Lambeth Town Hall, um, right opposite, next to the library a toilet you know and you saw people standing around it, looking at each other a little bit more than what what was necessary and if you were interested you could get involved so that brought you to think of oh yes quite possibly public conveniences which are male only you know which are of a certain size which are unattended by an attendant are probably going to be places so you find one and then of course you look for others you know, in a large London Termini, um, is probably the next best place to go, isn't it? I will start off with the experience of being somebody who should have been going to school at the age of 16. <gasps> um, and I thought, OK, duffel back. Take off school uniform. Change into something more appropriate. Get on Tube Train to Waterloo Station. Go into Waterloo Station and the toilets in Waterloo Station and the cubicles in Waterloo station or the urinals in Waterloo station and stand around but because I did look quite young it was actually easier to to wander around the cubicles and at that point in Waterloo station I think it's a it's a bar now the downstairs toilets there and um, which you didn't have to pay tempe just to get in you know there were 45 or 50 cubicles and many of them if not the majority of them not had not only a a nine-inch area at the bottom, but had holes between them. You know, people had drilled out holes. So you uh, went in there and sat down and, on the t- and, and moved your feet further and further apart so that your shoe could be seen under the cubicle next door. And then if somebody moved their feet towards that as well then, of course, you could start you know, knocking each other's feet and then you knew it was somebody who was... Uh, and uh, so then, you, know, you might look through the little hole which had usually been plugged up with a little bit of toilet paper you know, and look through. And Waterloo, for example, was one where you could actually, if you're agile enough, you could climb over from one to the other. And, of course, what you always did is that you put a carrier bag or your duffel bag or your suitcase in front of the door so that people couldn't see two sets of feet. And of course, you know, some very clever queens, you know, used to stand there in a plastic bag, so to speak, on their feet, so that two sets of feet couldn't be seen when somebody else got in. And then you had sex. And I used to spend many a pleasant afternoon in Waterloo. And this whole idea of it it offending public uh, decency or anything like that, well, no, because most people just who were using it for other the normal purposes of a toilet, you know, you know, came in, went in the nearest cubicle, came straight out again, and it was not as though people were uh, accosting the people who were using it not for cruising, because there would have been no point to it anyway. What was the point when there was so much delectable flesh on offer anyway? <laughs>
0: But there is a debate in the logbooks about how much info to give out about cruising, like Julian described, such as, you know, where to go to find a cottage. A cottage, for those who don't know, is the nickname for a place, usually a public toilet, where men go to have sex.
1: Yeah, and there's this uh, logbook entry from October 1975. It's entitled Reservations on Cottaging and Outside Sex Info. It's got six different bullet points the first sort of poses the question about whether switchboard volunteers would feel responsible for giving out a specific cottage or towpath where the caller then goes on to get attacked so to quote directly if that person then gets killed by a gang of thugs um, the volunteer suggesting instead that this is less likely to happen at saunas or pubs the second point is around the law and questioning whether switchboard will again in the words of the uh, volunteer get busted Asking if Switchboard as an organisation should instead try to obey the law, except um, on issues where 80% of gay people believe the law is definitely wrong. The third point suggests that if Switchboard becomes known for condoning cottaging, but giving the information out that those arrested might uh, give the following response to the police, Gay Switchboard sent me here. The volunteer then suggests that this could motivate the vice squad to pose fake calls, record them, and then use them against Switchboard in court. The volunteer then goes on to suggest that volunteers instead should direct callers uh, who are interested in cottaging to support groups or other organizations, pubs, with his final question asking if they will be thrown off Switchboard, this volunteer, um, if they refuse to carry out the proposed policy.
0: You can hear the the, the arguments in the, in the phone room happening almost, or in the pub maybe, after the shift. Of course, cruising is not for everybody.
3: In terms of sexual prospects, I was aware of cottaging and cruising. It always struck me as being both dangerous and also, to be perfectly frank, not very romantic. Um, Public lavatories are not um, areas of uh, interest or delight. Um, But yes, I was very aware that uh, for many people that was the only place they might find sex.
1: This is a logbook entry from October the 12th, 1975. On the subject of cruising, the trouble with the cruising scene is that the whole concept has become abused and distorted. Surely the idea of cruising is that a guy goes to, say, Holland Walk, of which I used to be very fond, in the hope of meeting someone with whom to trick, or if he is fortunate enough, with whom he can form a more lasting relationship. In brackets, I was lucky I met someone there whom I loved and lived with for three years, until he had to go back to the US. On returning to that place it seems that the whole scene has shifted to the dark stretch of the pathway at the top where groups of guys stand around with their hands in one another's pants. But apart from anything else it's much nicer to do things on a bed.
0: And then another volunteer has added a poem underneath this called On Public Sex, which is just Written into the logbook. And here we go. I'm going to read it. On public sex. Why beat someone's meat on a street or shoot your load on the road when you can wank it beneath a blanket and perhaps even discover a lover? Who knows? <laughs> it's cute. And then someone else has written for GN, suggesting that maybe they should submit that poem for publication and gay news
1: like the bit that's obviously by the original volunteer which says it's been rather quiet tonight (laughs) so good
0: one of the challenges faced by switchboard volunteers who in the late 70s identified really as gay men or lesbian was that one side had no clue about what the other was up to in bed
1: Yeah, which meant that all volunteers had to be prepared and clued up to talk about sex with anyone
0: former volunteer Femi has got a really good story about this
1: Everybody had to be
4: prepared to talk to everybody about everything, which meant I would sometimes be sitting next to a gay man, hearing him talking to what I perceived to be a lesbian about lesbian sexual practice. And I must say, more than once I was... (laughs) ..more than slightly um, surprised to some of the things. I I wasn't the only one, because some of us lesbians got together and decided that that we, we would do... An in-service training session on lesbian sex and sexual practice, and that led to one of the most embarrassing experiences of my life. I'd done biology and I, you know, done diagrammatic sketches and all of that, and so I thought, I know, I'll just, I'll teach them the biology. I'll run this session. I can do this. So I went and bought some, a great roll of lining paper, wallpaper lining paper, and I drew. And a massive, great diagram that was as big as my dining room table. Because a lot of lot of men got the vagina and the vulva there. I mean, they just didn't understand the difference. They just go the vagina and kind of think of a general area. So I drew this great big vulva and labelled it clitoris here and hood and menorah. And, and I rolled it all up and I uh, took it on the bus to the West London Day Centre where we tended to hold our uh, in-service training sessions. I don't know what happened to the elastic band that was supposed to be keeping that roll of lining paper rolled up. But as I came down the stairs of the bus, this wretched thing fell out of my hand and rolled down the stairs and, of course, opened up. Just The bus, fortunately, wasn't too full, but there were some uh, very shocked people on the the seats at the bottom of the stairs as this thing, this great diagram with this great vulva unfolded in front of them (laughs) we had a lot of fun in those days I mean I remember calls from women calling to say to ask about sex to ask about what's acceptable and what's not uh one of the ones I remember most of all was you know um I've managed to persuade this woman to come over to my house and she's coming and she's staying tonight and you know I've never had sex with a woman before and I I don't know what to do you know Um, And so so then you'd start with very practical things like, well, do you masturbate? What does that feel like for you? You know, you could try some of that, but you do have to keep, bear in mind, it won't necessarily work for you. Women just kind of going, I've read that penetration's like, okay, is that right? (laughs) So I don't know if it's right for everybody, but I can tell you, you know, that yes, you're right. Not everybody likes it. So really practical stuff. Um, And the women's stuff, you know, at least you can do that. I could do that as a woman, but I... The calls from women were a very small minority of the calls that I took most nights.
1: This is a logbook entry from November the 17th, 1976, and the volunteers called Louise. We had a call from a woman who said she has fantasies around caning other women, but they have become insufficient and she wanted to know if we had any info on groups where she could meet women with whom she could carry out her fantasies. I don't know of any SM groups for women, nor the best ways of contacting any, but I recommended Sappho as being the most likely to have the info if it exists.
5: When I joined Switchboard, I was incredibly naive in some ways. I mean, I thought I knew it all, but I can remember having a furious row in a very early logbook in the 80s about whether there was such a thing as a double-ended dildo. I'm Lisa Power. I'm a dyke who's been around for donkey's years, and I was on switchboard from 1979 for about 14 years. I mean, I'd never even seen a dildo at this point. Um, I, I talked a good talk about sex, but I wasn't that experienced. And one of the men ta- said something about double ended dildos, and I just went, I don't believe you. You know, you're making that up. And so somebody drew a little sketch and everything, and actually, And this is what Switchboard did for me. I ended up running the first lesbian sex toy mail order business in the UK. Actually, double-ended dildos were shit at that point because they were rigid. You know, they were hard plastic. So, I mean, if you put two people on a double-ended dildo, you kind of waved at each other from the far ends. So they weren't much cop, frankly, until you actually got latex ones, whereupon they were a lot more cop, but also tended to break if you got too enthusiastic with them. The
1: logbooks really are just so full of these debates, which make for fantastic reading um, and also training sessions for volunteers.
0: Yeah. And there's uh, another argument in the pages. This has got to be one of my favourites. It's about a drug that makes you feel a little rush and a little blush, especially during sex. Some people who are listening may know what I'm talking about. It's poppers, a smelly liquid that you sniff the vapour of.
1: Yeah, the entries we found are really about volunteers simply educating each other about poppers, what they are, what they do and what precautions to take. You
0: can tell in the debates on the pages of the logbooks between the volunteers that they have different levels of knowledge and awareness and understanding of poppers. And I guess it's probably quite hard to find information about that in 1975. And you've got some logbook entries, Tash?
1: Yeah, there are a couple of entries. The first one that we found was about poppers and how they are prescribed for use by doctors for patients with low low blood pressure um, as they increase the heart rate when the vapour is inhaled Um, it warns that if you have high blood pressure which smokers and drinkers often do without knowing it can put a strain on on the heart and sometimes cause a heart attack yet the next entry expands on this and actually contradicts it by saying that um, they are only dangerous to people with low blood pressure as the drop in blood pressure after use is what is harmful and that the actual liquid itself can also be an irritant if you come into contact with it
0: and then the volunteer called Ali comes in on September the 8th to respond to this debate that's going on in the pages and said, well, I've had emotional and physical pleasure heightened by occasional use of poppers and I would like to think that anyone who asks should be told that there's no harm in them unless you have a dodgy heart.
1: To which another volunteer has written, I would like to see an article on this before advising people in this very manner. <laughs>
2: Here's a logbook entry from the 4th of October 1976. It states: A guy phoned asking if we knew the handkerchief code. We didn't know. Does anyone else? Ah, oh. so essentially the handkerchief code was: you put a handkerchief of a certain colour in the back pocket of your jeans, and it means that you're into a specific sexual practice. Surely there's a response. Well, yes, yellow is water sports, says a volunteer. Can't remember the rest, but there's an article about it in Guy or him exclusive about six months ago, which we ought to look at. And then on the um, 22nd of the night, some uh, three months later in 76, uh, the glorious Tom Robinson, of Tom Robinson fame, right, who was a switchboard volunteer, has uh, put in a little thing um, from a smaller South Humberside. Slim, 38, own home, etc. Wants to meet bloke with black handkerchief in left pocket or right. There's more switchboard uh, switchboard entry next to that. Okay for you information-minded people, I just had this guy phone up asking what this is about. Well, as far as I know, left is for dominant, right is for submissive. Yellow means golden sharp, I don't know what black is. Well, I can tell you now, black is for leather. We had the hanky code eventually in the, uh, in the logbook, and we had the complete list. What it is a really good example of is that the community asked a question, and then amongst the volunteers, we sorted out what the response and the answer um, might be. To a certain extent, after about five years, like an awful lot of fads, it became more, more than a joke than anything else. There was the famous thing of, of wearing a teddy bear... A small teddy bear in one's left hand. Um, Jean's back pocket meant I was a cuddler and wearing it in the right hand meant that I uh, wanted to be cuddled.
0: It's a good job Julian was an expert in the phone room. Yeah,
1: Yeah. (laughs) but the key thing for switchboard volunteers is to always be prepared because you're never going to know what the caller is going to want to talk about, especially when it comes to sex.
0: Okay, so listen to this story from Jeremy.
6: I remember once when I picked up the phone, it was in a morning shift, and the person said to me, hello, I just want to um, talk to you before my master hangs me. What the hell do I say? What the hell do I do? And, of course, what happened in the conversation was that this is a sort of relationship that this person had with the master. And every Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock, they went through this ritual hanging. And it was perfectly normal. I think this is what we call in the BDSM world. It's a role play that two people have. and You know, there are people who are in relationships where there's a master and there's a slave. It's so easy for us to go like... To, to, to start putting our own interpretation. Is that right? Are you happy being this slave? Are you happy being hung every morning? What, what do you want to do? But actually that's what they wanted to do and that's what they like doing. You're, you're perfectly safe, you're perfectly happy with it. It happens and actually you just wanted to talk to me about something that was on the telly last night. That's just an example of all the different people in their different ways of life and the different way they things they do and even if your initial thoughts are, it's like, put them aside. Because that's not what it's about.
1: So it must have been so difficult to find out information back then. And there's, there's so much more now available, especially in the media. You know, We actually have TV shows which um, now you see women having sex with other women, transgender characters and sex scenes, and, and bisexual people depicted as a legitimate sexual identity. Um, although even all these years later, representation still has a long while to go. But a slightly problematic issue, and maybe one that's more relevant to our generation because of the ease of obtaining it, is pornography. And I know that uh, speaking as a woman, the way that women are depicted in pornography, especially women having sex with other women, um, as very much for the male gaze, uh, as well as other layers of complication, brings a a lot of concerns to one's mind.
0: Definitely. I do think that the flip side of what you just said, which I agree with, but the flip side is that um, for, for me and not lots of other people, it was a sex education. Certainly showed me ways of having sex that I, I that I didn't get from any other source, either from school or from, you know, films where things are just out of shot or whatever. I think it has a huge role to play about showing people what they might want to do and what might be their tastes. And that's yeah.
1: really important. But I think for me personally, it's, it's empowering the people who are in it and making sure that oh, there's definitely. like a level of control.
0: One way that people have taken control of how their sex lives are represented is in the form of poetry. Remember that little ditty, some unidentified bard scrawled into the logbook? Wank it beneath a blanket, that one. Well, that poem inspired us in bringing this theme up to today to hear from some poets with their various depictions of sex and intimacy. So here are three short poems read by their authors.
1: Mooncup. By Michelle Mangle. Should I pop out the moon cup? Yeah, pop it out, she said. We might get lucky later. I relished using those words, until then reserved for you and me, sitting on a kitchen counter in Cornwall, mischievously listening to the pretty girl agree. After flushing the dark red dregs, the final result of Arsenal playing at home, I went and got all types of drunk, but more than merrily jumped her bones. I didn't realise I got christened that night, in one way or another, Until she sat up and said, Oh shit, I've come on all over your white top. Oh God, here we go again Michelle, I've got all the feels. I think I love her.
3: Public Toilets in Regent's Park by Richard Scott The men here are bird-footed, feathering past the attendant's two-way mirror unperturbed by the colonising microorganisms Boledia, Kobecia, Shigellosis sliming across the yellowed groutings the fist-deep pool of brackish water quivering in the U-bend the tile that reads, for information on venereal disease telephone O one. one all for the thrill of placing their knees on the piss-stained coal the iris shimmering behind a hand-carved glory hole, a beautiful cock unfolding like a swan's neck from the Harris tweed of a city gent's suit. Whispers, gasps of contact echo inside each nested cubicle, but careful, the prying attendant will rattle her bucket and mop if she spies four shoes. Our men disperse as mallards from the face of a pond.
7: God birth by Annie Hayter You cradled me like I was a god, newly born, as if whole worlds would open if my limbs crackled, as if my fresh bones would crumble into seas and cities, Wails and circuses if you were not gentle. Lips, downed damp as expectation on birth a new century in unwieldy arms and ribs which cave out. The breath of you on my back frees me, mouth on skin. A cerulean kiss which undoes a new sky, a heaven broken The concern in your voice, the wornness, how frail we are, how we bruise to a touch, collapse to hands settling. Even gods get cold.
0: Now we have to move from the freedom of sex to the shackles of law
1: enforcement. And we can see from the logbooks that people were often intimidated by the police.
0: And that's our next episode. We're going to hear stories and read logbook entries that are all about the police.
1: Calls to Switchboard are confidential. So to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names.
0: The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Darvey, Adam Smith and Tash Walker in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT helpline.
1: If you think other people would like The Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org.
0: Our music is by Tom Foskett-Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto.
1: Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute,
0: the folks at ACAST,
1: Gareth Mitchell at Imperial College London,
0: the staff and volunteers at Switchboard,
1: and all the contributors who shared their stories. 45 years on, Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630. Email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt
7: where you can also donate money or time to help.